0: This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. This is a One and All Media podcast. Today,
1: today, today,
0: today, with Jeff Fines,
1: we are taking the gospel to the world.
0: Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher.
1: Bringing people far from God, near to God. We believe in one truth that will be delivered in love and compassion. Connecting every one person to all that God has promised them.
0: Today. Today. Today with Jeff Fines. Welcome to Today with Jeff Fines. My name's Aaron and I'm one of the members on the team here at One and All Media and we're still in the series Hey Up There about how God constantly calls us to look up, to turn our eyes and our hearts to him. In this episode, Pastor Jeff wants to encourage us, but ultimately, he wants to challenge us to strive to live godly lives. Pastor Jeff speaks about how Jesus imparts wisdom about fulfilling the law. I can't wait to hear this message. Let's get into it now with Pastor Jeff.
1: I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5, and we're in this series called Look Up Here, where assuming that when God gives us his precepts or his law, that he's motivated as a father would be to his own children. He's motivated out of love. And so the law of God is always attached to design. Uh, so if you, don't, if you don't change the oil in your car, I can tell you, I've done this uh, many, many times. If you don't change the oil regularly in your car, what happens? It starts to disintegrate and you'll be pushing it sooner or later. That's because there's a violation of design. It's built certain way, you can't violate it. Same thing is true with your food, what you eat. If you eat fatty foods all your life, sooner or later, you're going to die of a heart attack. And uh, it's because, not because God sits up in heaven thinking, thou shalt not eat McDonald's. He's just simply saying that you weren't built like that. Your bodies don't function. They don't work like that. You violate the design, there will be ramifications that have nothing to do so much with justice as it has to do with design. So the reason we want to take a look at the Sermon on the Mount is because the Bible is going to teach us, Jesus is going to teach us that this is the way you ought to live. And if you live this way, man, you're going to fight back the disintegration that's so much a part of our planet, of your soul, of your, your, your psychological nature, your, uh, your physical nature. If you live this way, you're going to push back disintegration and you're going to live a, a life of vitality, of, of health, of goodness, of purity, of, of life and vitality that starts way down deep in here, the Bible talks about, where it's like a, a water of, of living water, a spring that's just flowing out and people will take notice. So when you violate the design, it's kind of illogical to get angry with God when your life goes in a different direction that's part and partial to the choices that you've made. So Jesus says, here's the law. Now, Here's the strange thing about the Sermon on the Mount, though. Remember, we're studying the most famous piece of literature. You realize that? We are studying together, which means it's going to be a little heady. You know, I can't just be a pastor that's a PEZ dispenser of shallow information. It's good from time to time that you're forced to think a little bit. And there's some tension because we're we're looking at the Word of God here. And here's the outline of the Sermon on the Mount, okay? Sermon on the Mount, part one, this is how you should live. Part two, you can't do it. That's the outline. Here's the way you should live. And basically, it's good luck with that. But then there's a third part that we'll get to. And to make sure we understand this, verse 21, we pick up the story in Matthew 5. Jesus says, you've heard it said uh, to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raqqa is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now notice, it's not enough that you don't kill someone. You can't even refer to someone as Raka, which we'll explain in a moment. You can't even call somebody a fool and you can't even get angry with someone because those same emotions lead to murder. So it's not enough not to kill. You can't feel the way you feel inside without violating the law. Now here's the problem. I look at that and Jesus violated all three. He goes into the temple, and he's angry because they've turned the house of prayer into a den of thieves. The Bible says, let me read it to you, in verse 15, so he, Jesus, made a whip out of cords and drove all the temple courts, from all the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers, which means he overturned the tables. Now, Jesus' anger here is premeditated too, because what do you have to do to make a whip? It takes time to make a whip. So he sees what's going on and what does Jesus do? He walks over and says, let me have some of those. Let me have that leather and give me some of that duct tape. And he's making this whip and you wonder if he's thinking, okay, you, you people, I cannot believe you've done this. I'm going to get you when I get finished making this whip. So he's angry and then I'm going to drive all you out. And he not only drove the money changers out, but he said he even slapped around the sheep and the, and the, what is it? The sheep and the cattle. What did they do? And he drives them all out. So I'm told I can't be angry. Well, Jesus is angry and he drives them out of the temple. Then in Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells a parable that says his father calls some people fools. Let me read it to you. But God said to him, and this is the guy who's building bigger and bigger barns. He said, you fool this night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you prepare for yourself? So Jesus says, those guys in the world, especially I'm assuming that In the Western world, because we would be described as the rich ones today. So, those who have enough money to eat and have a roof over their heads, and then they keep making more money and they build bigger and bigger barns, they buy more and more cars and more and more homes. He says, You take all that time to build something that's all gonna pass away in the end, you're not smart. You're a fool. And God says, God will say, You fool. This very night, your life could be demanded from you. What are you doing? And then, as you go to the book of Revelation, then we're introduced to Jesus on the day of the Lord when. The day of judgment and justice arrives. And we're told that Jesus has two kinds of anger. Let me read the verse to you. It's in Revelation 19, 15. Coming out of his mouth, this is Jesus, is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. So there are two Greek words. And both of them are exemplified in Jesus. One is orge. Orge is a steady wrath. It's like God sits up in heaven and he's thinking, oh man, there's so much injustice down there. I am not happy about this. And he just kind of, it stirs in him. But he says, I'm going to wait because I'm patient and I don't want anyone to be lost for eternity. So I'm going to wait, but I'm really angry, but I'm going to wait. And then one day on the day of the Lord, the orge wrath turns to thumos wrath, which is volcanic type wrath. It's when the fury of God spews out and justice. Justice finally comes into the world. And so we're told not to be angry. We're told not to harbor feelings of anger. We're told not to call anybody a fool. And yet we see God and Christ doing all three. The answer is that this particular kind of anger that violates this command is the kind of anger that goes along with this Aramaic term, raka. And raka is a term that basically means you look at another person and say, you are less than human. You don't matter you don't matter. You're dismissive. You write them off. You have a contempt, a disdain, a belittling. Now let me test you on this. I told you this is going to be heady. You with me? Let me give you a little test of how you're doing on this. You're driving on the 210. There's a driver weaving in and out of traffic. Now your park, it's a parking lot and everybody's in a hurry, but this dude thinks the whole freeway is made for him. It doesn't matter where you have to go. It just matter where he has to go. So he's weaving in and out, cutting people off, and he's even driving on that lane you're not supposed to drive in can you tell this ticks me off? And so you get angry and he passes you. And then 10 miles later, you catch up to him and the police have pulled him over. What goes through your mind? Let me help you. Yeah. I hope that fine is a thousand dollars. I hope they take you right to jail, you little heathen. I hope they impound your car. Because your anger is about pride and personal violation. You actually care little about the restoration of the one who's violated. The point is, Jesus did get angry, but it was a godly anger in the sense that the person mattered. And his anger, prayerfully and hopefully, would lead to restoration or rehabilitation or a life change, which means Jesus' anger is always rooted in love. So when God would say, you fool... He's hoping that that term will wake you up to the harm that's being done to yourself and everybody around you. It's Jesus' way of saying, really? You're going to build bigger, bigger barns? And you're never going to stop to ask the bigger questions of life, like who gave you these things? Who gave you talents and abilities? Who breathed life into you? Who made everything that you see? You work so hard to gain what is temporary at best, and you pay no attention to your soul. The one thing that will last forever And it's God's way of saying, you're missing out on life, man. You're abandoning your family. You're missing out on the best things I have for you. I have so much more. Look up here. You with me? You'll read in the scripture where it says Jesus wept. Jesus was deeply troubled in spirit. You'll even read that Jesus was angered, but you will never read that Jesus sneered at anyone. Never. Because he takes the person with whom he's angry very seriously. You take a father and a son. A father becomes angry, right? And he says to his son, why are you drinking so much? Why are you cheating on your wife? Why are you constantly doing drugs? Why are you smoking marijuana every single night? So the father becomes angry. Why though? Because he loves his son, right? Because his son matters to him. His anger is not the seedbed for harm, but for restoration. Now the point is Jesus is making, by the way, you want to be a Christ follower, right? Okay, three of you do. (laughs) Let me go back and preach the gospel and we'll have a salvation moment here. I'm assuming that you want to be a Christ follower. And if you do, Jesus, yeah, Jesus is saying then that your anger has got to move from raka to contempt to an absence of pride and ego and personal offense to actually, because sometimes you should be angry and you're not. You should be angry and you're not. But your anger has to have at its Deepest motivation, the restoration and life change and transformation of a person. Well, you say, well, Pastor Jeff, how can Jesus then say that there's no difference between a murderer, somebody who actually does it, and me who has thoughts of anger inside? How can that not be different? Here's how. Two acorns, okay? Both acorns have full oak tree capacity. They have the capacity within them to produce something beautiful. One falls on fertile ground. And a beautiful oak tree emerges. The other falls on concrete, burns up and disintegrates. Both had full oak tree capacity. One produces a beautiful oak tree. The other dies and disintegrates. Is it because one acorn was better than the other? It's because what? The fertile ground or infertile ground upon which they fell. The point Jesus is making here, it's a mistake to look at a murderer and say to the murderer, You're horrible and you're worse than anybody else. Even though Jesus will say murder is wrong, rape is wrong, those things are wrong. But you have the same seeds in you if you had dropped on different ground. They're in you too. That's why he says if you're going to be angry with somebody, it's okay to be angry at injustice. You should be. But your anger should have deep in its core the hope of grace and mercy, forgiveness and restoration. Now, you've got to stay with me here for a moment. That's why Jesus comes along and says you should never hold a grudge against anyone. It's a seedbed for murder. You must never treat anyone dismissively as if they don't matter. No one. And the reason is is because both anger and disdain grow until they create insatiable lust for destruction. Which is why the law of God is so good. It ends up being a preemptive strike against your natural tendencies. Okay, so come with me here just for a moment, and we'll go back and relate this. Let me me give you an example. In the Old Testament, uh, in Exodus, the Bible tells us that the Pharaoh looks at the Hebrews and how numerous they are, and he's afraid one day, if he doesn't do something about it, they'll grow so numerous that there will be a hostile takeover of the Egyptians. And so he convinces all the Egyptians to hate the Hebrews and to enslave them. He convinces them that they're worse than human. There's a verse in Exodus 1.11 that says, he set taskmasters over them to oppose them with forced labor. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, this is a huge story, isn't it? You've got the Ten Commandments. You've got the Ten Plagues. You've got the Passover feast that is going to govern so much of Jewish life into the future. And yet, you know, Pharaoh is not a name. It's a title. So how is it that in Hebrew history, Pharaoh, the Pharaoh, is never given a name And yet he is so instrumental in a big part of the history of the Hebrew people. And the reason is, is the Torah is trying to help you understand the collective guilt of the Egyptians. One man cannot commit mass murder. It takes a large group of people. Stay with me. It takes a large group of people. So the first thing you have to do is get people angry with someone. And then that seed leads to hate. And that seed leads to murder. So let's talk about what Hitler did with the Jews for a moment. What did he do? He made... The Germans think the Jews were less than. He blamed the economic problems on the Jews. So he started to close down Jewish shops. And he basically said, if it wasn't for the Jews, we would be prospering. And then he treated and talked about the Jews as if they were animals. The same thing happened with Pharaoh and the Hebrews. He convinced the Egyptians that the Hebrews were beasts of burden. They were just slaves. They were less than human. It's the same thing that the Hutus did with the Tutsis in Rwanda in 1994 with the genocide. The Hutus convinced the people that the Tutsis were cockroaches. They were scavengers there to just take everything away from the Hutus. And the whole point is that mass evil begins when anger leads to raka, and you begin to look at someone as a non-entity you have apathy and a total disdain. So Hitler said the Jews are animals. Pharaoh said the Hebrews are beasts of burden and Hutus said the Tutsis are cockroaches. Now here's the point. If you made it this far, Jesus says, I'm going to create a community of people who keep modeling for the rest of the world, how we should treat each other. This group, they're going to be the stopgap in culture for as soon as... as soon as the community or culture begins to hate one group of people, it's the Christ followers that are supposed to stand up and say, wait a what are you doing? We're all created in the image of God. We all have intrinsic value. We're supposed to be the ones that stand up and say, stop. We don't ever let our anger go to hatred and disdain to where we start treating people as if they are worthless. George Whitfield, one of the most famous pastors, godly man, wrote out a set of self-evaluation questions that I want to ask you, just one of them. He asked himself this question three times a day. Have I thought or spoken unkindly, unsympathetically, uncharitably to or about anyone? You ask yourself that time, that three times a day, it will wrench you. Does it make sense now where I told you, here's the wall, here's how you should live, good luck? How hard is that? I can't tell you how many times I've been embarrassed. The the trouble with social media is that it's social and everybody sees it. When we write things on Facebook about anybody that is filled with anger, that devalues them, it's not just discourteous folks. It's got the smell of sulfur about it. it. It's straight, it's hellish. And so Jesus says, I want my disciples to treat everyone as if they were infinitely precious in the image of God. Now, can I give you another test? This is meaty stuff and you're following, right? Okay, let's give you a little test. I want you to measure your emotions. I'm going to show you some pictures of some people. And I want you to be honest with yourself. Do you really pray for these people? And are you angry about what they do? But even though you're angry about what they do, if you were to meet them as an individual, you would actually be courteous. And when they walked away from you, they would know you're a Christ follower. And if you met them as a Christ follower, do you really believe that they have infinite value because they've been created in the image of God? And would you treat them with respect? Oh, the calling of Christ is hard, isn't it? Now, let me me explain something here. If I'm a soldier and I'm in World War II and I meet Hitler, my job is not grace. My job is to kill him. The Bible's very clear that there's a great difference between you as an individual Christ follower and you as a representative of a nation in war. You understand? A policeman, his job out in the community is not grace. <laughs> Think about it. If a policeman said to a rapist and a murderer, hey, it's okay, man, I'm all about grace, that's injustice. But that policeman off-duty, as a Christ follower, when he's not representing the state, what's his job? Pray for the guy. Man, I got to help you. I got to get you help. And the reason you're able to do that as a Christ follower is you know that whatever, no matter how bad somebody's doing something, the same seeds are in you. And given the right ground, you may do the same. Now, some of you are saying, But I'm not as bad as them. There we go. i got to go back and preach the gospel again. Two acorns. How would Jesus treat you if he met you? Should he be angry with you? How would he treat you? He would plead for you to change. He would tell you the truth about yourself. He would hope that you would change. He would hope that you would consider eternity in the light of all your beliefs and actions. But he'd be pulling for you inside. For transformation, and he would tell you there's hope. That's why Jesus says in verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean by that? Because the listeners in Jesus' day, you know, the Pharisees were like the monks and the Amish of our day. You know, they, they saw themselves as professional do-gooders. They're tightly ordered community, tightly ordered lives governed by a long list of regulations designed primarily to prevent violation of any law. So when Jesus would have said this to his audience, his audience would have probably responded, how, how is it even possible for us to be more righteous than the Pharisees? But you see, this is what the Sermon on the Mount is trying to tell you, that the law is not just outward external compliance with it. It's not merely wrong to violate the law, but it's an equal violation to have thoughts and motives that lead to violating the law. And furthermore, you must have the attitudes and motives of the heart that lead to doing the opposite. In other words, it's not enough not to hate. You must love. It's not enough not to hate Putin. You must love him. Not enough not to hate Hillary. You must love her. Not enough not to hate your president. You must love him. Now do you know why? Here's the law. Good luck. But yet the law is good. It brings life. It brings vitality. Now, if your elevator does not go all the way to the top, you know, if you're one sandwich short of a picnic, if you're a few cards short of a full deck, if you're a few fries short of a Happy Meal, you got it? If people describe you as the battery's not fully charged or the gates are down, the lights are flashing, but the train ain't coming... If that's how people describe you, then you hear what I've just said. You say, yeah, man, that's me. I'm righteous. I do all those things. Unless you're one ski short of a snowmobile, you hear Jesus' words, and suddenly you realize, I can't do that, especially when you get to verse 19, and he starts talking about the prophets and the whole Bible. And then you realize you don't just get rules in the law. You get exemplars in the law. You get inspiring stories that are supposed to inspire you, but they really don't. They do, but they don't. Because you see these people doing amazing things and you say, I can't do that. Moses parts the Red Sea. Joshua falls the wall of Jericho. Abraham leaves home and all of his wealth to go to a land he doesn't even know where he's going because he trusts God. Abraham takes Isaac onto the mountain. Joseph forgives his brothers. Forgives his brothers who sold him into slavery and then weeps when they're restored. So if you really think about it, you agree that all those things are good. But you know, you can't live like that. So here's how you must live. You can't do it. And then the third part is, but in Christ, something special happens. So in verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, but instead I've come to fulfill the law. Okay. Stay with me. If you stay with me, I'll preach shorter. <laughs> I can tell when you're with me. If you, if you zone out, I think I've lost you. So I got to keep telling the illustrations to get you back. All right. Usually when we talk about the law and Jesus' fulfillment of it, we talk about the fact that he paid the penalty for our sins, right? Say, okay, yeah, I know Jesus fulfilled the law. He did for me what I could not do for myself. Let me illustrate it to you like this. When we come to the law, and I've noticed this in church for 30-some years, when you come to the law of God and we acknowledge that it's good, there are three types of people seated in churches. Three types of people in the room right now.
0: You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fiennes. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff.
1: The first type of person is what I call a walker. He or she comes out and they see the law. And man, they think they are so right. Watch me. Look at me go. Look at this. I am so righteous. I keep the law. I love the law. Now, they fall all the time, but they're not going to tell you about that. And they're very judgmental. Even in areas that they're not strong, if you fail, they will judge you. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for
0: Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, today, today with Jeff Vines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to One and All. Media. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to One and All. Media.